Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I thought I'd left you Somewhere in the Hello and welcome to the Robert Lane Creative Careers Podcast, a podcast about creativity and making a living in the arts. This episode of the podcast features a conversation with Dr. Randall Pinkett, author of Data Driven DEI. Randall is an entrepreneur, innovator and DEI expert. He's also an international public speaker, holds five academic degrees and was the season four winner of the reality TV show, The Apprentice. You can find Randall at randallpinkett.com and to learn more about me and see the projects that I'm working on, take a look at robertlaymusic.co.uk. It would be fantastic if you could rate, review and subscribe to the podcast as doing that helps more people to discover it. It's also great when people share the podcast far and wide. Thank you. Here's my conversation with Dr. Randall Pinkett. Hi Randall, how are you? I am very well, Robert. Thank you for the opportunity to have this conversation. Oh, well, thank you for the opportunity to talk to you. This is an absolute pleasure. Um, you're just having released a, a new book, I think, recently, Data Driven DEI, which I would love to get into. But as this is a sort of podcast focused on creativity, I wondered if I could ask you a little bit about your process of writing. When you're in a writing uh, period, are you keeping office hours to write? Are you writing as and when? Is it your main focus, your main project at the time? How does it work for you? I appreciate that, Robert. Data-Driven DI is my fifth book. So I've been down this road quite a number of times, and the process has evolved over the years. Uh, My first book was in 2006. And at the time, I started that that journey with with, uh, uh, the equivalent of a ghostwriter to help scaffold the, the process. But I quickly realized... I, I prefer to own my own voice mm-hmm. and not try to retrofit it into someone else's. So I, 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 I took that project over and did it, did it myself. And then I would take uh, several days of a hiatus uh-huh. just to write. Now, then 2006, the world was not as frenetic as it is now. Not that it wasn't frenetic then, because it was frenetic then. It's just more frenetic now, or my life is more frenetic now. Uh the last two books, I had a co-author, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Robinson, and we would do weekend sabbaticals. We would leave Friday and then go to a hotel, only to sit in the hotel room all weekend and order room service. <laughs> and we'd bring a whiteboard where we would lay out ideas and bounce things off each other and then go right and then come back and then bounce stuff off each other again. This book was back to being a solo project, so I didn't have uh, anyone to bounce anything off except myself. Right. And- I reverted back to the the sabbaticals, typically on weekends, but sometimes I could squeeze it out during the week. But I would do about two-day stints of just writing and then sometimes uh, after work hours into the wee hours of the morning until I ran out of gas. So uh, I used PowerPoint to generate a lot of, of visuals that made it into the book because that was a way of, of stimulating my thinking mm-hmm. and the visuals would, would stimulate my thinking. My thinking would stimulate the visuals. And so this book has to have at least 50 diagrams, at least 50 diagrams. 
uh, and that was just part of my creative process. I'm a visual thinker and I'm a speaker also. So mm. the writing and the visuals, the visuals and the writing was what led to my iterative process. Mm. Great. Okay. That's cool. And so how long a process was this to write this book then? And is it been, is it a typical amount of time? Is this longer? Is it shorter? As you got used to it? How does it work? It should have been shorter, Robert, <laughs> but, but it ended up being longer. Uh, I underestimated how much work it would be because I had written the previous two books with a co-author uh-huh. and my mind said, oh, it'll be comparable to that. But wait, no, you got to multiply it by two because <laughs> you only did half the work for the last two books. And then second, I thought I had a framing for this book, which was to target it toward DEI professionals, thought leaders, mm-hmm. executives. But the publisher, Wiley, uh, one of the acquisition editors, uh, Michael Campbell, challenged me in a very healthy way. He said, I think that that audience is too narrow. Uh I think you should cast a wider net and target this book for anyone who cares about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Meaning, not just an organizational journey, but a personal journey. Mm. How could you, Robert, how could I, Randall, use data to drive our diverse relationships, our inclusive behaviors, our equitable practices, which meant it became two books in one. <laughs> I, the book is literally two books. It's a personal DEI journey and an organizational DEI journey. Right. And so I went from double the work of the last book to now double the work of that book because it's two books in one. And so I missed three deadlines, Robert, on this wow. book. I started it um, in the spring of 2021. And I was supposed to deliver the book in the spring of 2022. I didn't deliver it until the fall of 2022. And then it got released in March of 2023. Cool. And was that scary then missing those deadlines? Or was that, is that part of the process and Mm -hmm. you and the publisher knew that it would all be okay? Or was it terrifying? Uh, it got progressively more terrifying um, <laughs> because the publisher at first was like, oh, that's fine. We'll give you a couple more months. And I'm like, okay, I need more months. Like, okay, we'll give you a few more months, but we need you to start to wrap this up. And then I said, I need more months. And like, all right, look, look, dude, <laughs> we need you to wrap this up. And they start citing contract clauses and all that kind of other stuff. And I'm like, oh gosh, I got to get this done. And so, I, and it's not for lack of effort. I can, mm. I, you know, I'm not the type of person who misses deadlines, which only says this really was significantly more work than I had ever imagined. It was the hardest book I've ever written. It's the most technical book I've ever written because mm. I tried to make it easy for the reader that I did all the work. I gave you all the research on the tools. I gave you a process to use the tools. I told you which ones are good for this situation and not that situation. I laid it all out to make the journey for the people and the organizations on how data can drive their DEI journey extraordinarily easy. Hmm. I'm interested then just to compare the collaborative process with working on your own. You've just said it was the most difficult book you've written. Apart from that, how would you compare the two and what would be your um, preferred approach for the next one? Well, I I promised my wife that there's no books coming soon because (laughs) this took me out of the game. (laughs) We're going... Uh, to the family reunion, uh, I can't go. <laughs> I mean, I'm exaggerating. It wasn't quite that bad, but it was close. It was close. Uh, I 
I prefer the collaborative approach. Um, I do. I, I I really enjoy. So Jeff Robinson, just as a matter of of, of context, who who was my co-author for two of my five books. We mm-hmm. wrote two together. Mm-hmm. He was my roommate in college. He was the best man at my wedding. He's my business partner. He's my fraternity brother. He's my neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> and his kids call me Uncle Randy. Uh, like, like you will not find two people who are closer, not born of the same womb. So you can imagine working with him was, was, was a joy. Yeah. Uh, it was an honor. It was a privilege. And we were very different. So that difference led to great ideas. It was the crucible of our disagreement that produced really great works. Uh, and, and, and I found there were times where he would say things. And I'm like, that's I would have never thought about it that way. And that's so much better for the reader on how we should convey that idea. So I feel like there's something missed when there isn't that collaborative process to sharpen uh you know, that iron sharpens iron. I truly believe that. And so while I'm proud of the work I did for this book, I'm convinced it would have been even stronger if I had a co-author. And are those disagreements then ever kind of um, aggressive is the wrong word, but are people arguing their points of view and taking a position for a day or two? Or is it usually just like, no, you're right, we'll go with that? Uh, We we disagree without being disagreeable. Uh, Which is the the closeness of your relationship, I guess, as well. Yeah, it's the love that we have for each other that smooths things out that's the oil to the engine (laughs) is the love that we have for each other so we can vehemently disagree with each other Mm -hmm. and it's still respectful Mm. because we are seeking to understand each other and arrive at what we collectively agree is the best path forward and when we agree it's synergistic it's it's you know it's uh kind of uh, uh uh it's powerful it's it's beautiful uh, but it takes time. Mm. You know, they say diverse teams take longer to make decisions, but they make better decisions. Ah, that's interesting. Okay, so mm. let's talk a little bit about this book then. I'm going to ask a very, very, very straightforward and simple question for anyone listening in who might not know. What is DEI? <laughs> Great question. So oh. DEI is diversity, equity, and inclusion. It has become a acronym uh, that can have lots of different interpretations nowadays. Um, here's how I interpret DEI. Okay. Uh, diversity is the range of human differences, all the beautiful ways in which we're different, which makes our world a beautiful place. Mm-hmm. It contributes to our food and our art and culture and travel. Like that's diversity, all the range of human differences. Inclusion is involvement and empowerment. Mm-hmm. We want people to feel involved, but also empowered, that their voices are heard, that their contributions make a difference, that their efforts are appreciated. And then equity is fairness in outcomes. Mm. That is, if the outcome is getting hired or getting promoted or having access to opportunity, everyone should have equal access to that out, fairness in that outcome. Now, there should be nothing that impedes the like the, the the fairness of me getting hired versus somebody else getting hired. The fairness of me getting promoted versus somebody else getting promoted or having access to opportunity. And so, equity is not about everyone getting the same thing. It's about everyone getting what they need, meeting people where they are. Mm. 
And some would argue, and I would agree, that at the intersection of diversity, equity, and inclusion is belonging. Feeling respected and heard and valued. That when we get it right, when people create diverse environments, inclusive environments, and equitable environments, people feel like they belong. Mm. And that's DEI. Mm. Great. And you'd mentioned, I think, that the the original focus of this book was going to be for organizations and businesses but then we have this personal approach as well so without giving your whole book away what kind of conclusions might we come to then for our, our own self and in the workplace so the book lays out this five-step process and arguably it's six because there's a step zero <laughs> um and it's built off of off an alliteration of the letter i mm-hmm. it begins with dei incentives, Mm. self-reflection and introspection of why this matters to you. You got to do that soul searching to clarify why would you even want to pursue a diversity, equity, and inclusion journey. Then goes to DEI inventory, conduct an assessment. To know where you're going, you have to know where you are. You conduct a personal assessment of your preferences, your competences to know where your baseline is. Next is DEI imperatives. What's your goals and your objectives? How can you also put a measure on that to know that you've accomplished it? Next is my favorite step, DI insights, which says before you decide what you're going to do, look at what worked for somebody else. Don't reinvent the wheel. There's lots of best practices. In fact, go to datadrivendei.com and I've inventoried for you best practices for people and for organizations. Next, finally, step four, follow me, is DEI initiatives. What are you going to do? After four preceding steps, what are you going to do? And how do we gauge progress to know that there's activity or outputs that can lead to outcomes? Last step, DEI impact. Look at where you've made progress. Look at where you've achieved results. Learn, course correct, and then go back to DEI uh, uh, inventory, to reassess yourself, reevaluate yourself, and then go back through the cycle again and again and again. I say DEI is a data-driven journey, not a destination. Yeah, I love that. And it's a process we can keep coming back to. As a, yeah, oh, oh, and that's great. I was watching a really interesting video of yours earlier, um, Candid Conversation with a Black Businessman. And there was a couple of things in that that I thought were just really interesting areas of discussion and you sort of set them up to things to talk about so i want to talk about, them. <laughs> talk about <it. laughs> this idea of white privilege and you can think of it as a as a fish in a stream i thought that was a very interesting way to talk about it and i'll even abstract it robert just say privilege i'll make it personal you know, privilege is unearned advantages for example i think it's like 60% of CEOs are above six foot. You, you can't tell, Robert, because I'm only on your screen, but I'm, I'm six foot four. Okay. I enjoy a certain privilege, an unearned advantage of people assuming that I know what I'm talking about, even when I don't, because I'm tall. <laughs> I have an unearned advantage of being a man because we know that in business, and I'm in business, men are often in leadership positions. Now, that's changing, of course, with Me Too and equity, diversity, and inclusion is changing all that. But traditionally, men have had an unearned advantage in business. So the analogy of a fish in a stream is 
A fish swimming with the stream often doesn't know it's swimming with the stream. It's just swimming. And when you have unearned advantages, they're often invisible to you because for those who have the unearned disadvantage, it is imminently clear to them. So for me as an African-American, I have unearned disadvantage, which I am imminently aware of when people question my qualifications, challenge me on what I know and don't know. Mm. Oh, it's clear. But when they assume I'm competent because I'm tall, I don't notice that. When they say, oh, you can get that done because you're a man, I don't notice that. I'm going with the stream. When you are at a disadvantage, when you don't have privilege, you're that fish running against the stream. You know it very well. But when you have the unearned advantage, you often don't know it because you're that fish going with the stream. And another key bit to, uh, I sort of spotted in what you said was that if you were to ask the fish who's stream, swimming with the stream, they would still say, it's a hard swim, this. Right. Um, you know, it's That's a challenge, right. this is. And it's because it is. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Privilege doesn't mean that it's easy for you. Or that it's assumed that you're going to reach your destination either, I guess. Exactly right. That's right. I mean, both fish with the stream and against the stream are doing work. Mm. So we're not questioning that it's, it could be a difficult path for either fish. All we're suggesting is, all what privilege suggests is that you have unearned aids, wins, streams that you may not be aware of, that you should not take for granted because you can use that privilege to help those who don't have it. I can be an ally for women as a man. I can be in the room to have the conversation to say, why are we overlooking Kate when she's qualified? She should have consideration. And so that's where we turn privilege into power when we become allies for those who don't have privilege. Mm. And how do we become aware of our privilege then if we're that fish in the stream? Well, I can tell you this. Um, If you are a white male Christian, heterosexual, able-bodied person, or check any of those boxes, Mm -hmm. you've got it. (laughs) (laughs) I might even add English speaking, depending on the context that you operate in. I could even add that too. Um, But if that's not the case, uh, then you can easily uh, Google and do homework on privilege, and you can go all the way in on not just that, but also on allyship. Mm. And I think your diversity point as well is your sort of um, definition of what diversity is, is talking to people outside of your stream would be a useful way of finding out about this stuff as well. Absolutely. And if you, and in fact, in the book, Data Driven DEI, I've provided an elaborate inventory of tools that can assess you on a variety of different uh, measures. And among them is uh, tools that can measure you on privilege personality, cultural values, thinking preferences, conflict style, inclusive behaviors, attitudes towards racism. I have an inventory that runs the table on all of those facets. If you want to go back to step one, DEI inventory, what do you want to know about yourself to aid your journey? The book has the answer for you. Okay. Um, Targeted universalism. And um, being the canary in the coal mine. Can you talk to me about that a little bit? Yes. So so when we talk about uh, privilege, John Powell, who is a a renowned scholar, has this, this concept of targeted universalism. And what it essentially says is 
we can have a universal goal for everyone to have greater inclusion and equity and belonging, but we may need very targeted strategies to accomplish that. And they're not mutually exclusive to have a universal goal and have targeted strategies. And we must often focus those targeted efforts on who is most impacted, who is most severely disadvantaged. And the analogy there is the canary in the coal mine. Miners put the canary in the coal mine because the canary was an early warning system that we may have toxic gases or loss of oxygen, which means the coal miners are at risk of, of, of dying. But, but the canary dying, dying first was the warning sign. We got to get out of here. They were the most impacted, the most severely disadvantaged, the, the canary. Um, so here's a practical example. Let's take people with disabilities. They're the ones most severely impacted by curbs, by mobility, by trying to navigate streets and corners and uh, 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 steps. So let's target our strategy for people with disabilities when we talk about these. And let's build ramps, for example, for people with disabilities so that they can get up the curve. They can navigate uh, steps. They can uh, uh, find their way in streets. But guess what? By, by that targeted strategy, we yield a universal benefit. It benefits parents with strollers. It benefits little children trying to get up the curb. It benefits cyclists trying to navigate the streets, but it wasn't targeted to them, but it has a universal benefit. So when we target the canary, it benefits the coal miners. When we target the, the most severely impacted, in this case, people with disabilities, it, it has universal benefits. And that's the basic idea of targeted universalism. Great. Thank you very much. Um, if someone says that they don't see color. That's something that well-meaning people will occasionally say, I don't see color, I treat everybody the same. <laughs> That's not that helpful. How come? And my first response to them is, how do you not see color? <laughs> <laughs> Where have you been? Yeah. Like, I mean, like in a very practical way, how do you not see someone's color? Like it's right in front of you. Now, and I understand to your point, Robert, th there's a spirit behind it. It's, yeah. it's extraordinarily well-intended. Because what that person is saying is, is not in these words, is I treat people fairly regardless of color is what they really are attempting to say. And my response to them is, it's not that you don't want to see color. Actually, you want, I want you to see my color and still treat me fairly. <laughs> like, And that's a more honest response and a more truthful one is you, you see it. You see gender. You see disability, you hear an accent, and whether you know it or not, oftentimes you make assumptions based on color, based on gender, based on disability, based on an accent. And what we want to work toward is not having that trigger, that response impact how we treat people. So don't, don't say that you don't see color because you're not being honest with yourself. Say that you see it and you strive to still treat people fairly and to acknowledge and celebrate all of their differences. And saying that you don't see it is denying certain things, isn't it, it, that are happening in society or in history and all the rest of it. And again, that's not acknowledging privilege, I guess. If you if you sort of say, perhaps it's a privileged position even where you can say, I, you know, I can treat everybody the same regardless of their colour. It's like, well, maybe you can, having never experienced being a person of colour or a disabled person or whatever else it is. 
Yeah, and Robert, I'll give you a, a perfect example. It's it's so perfect. In the 1970s, the big five orchestras were 5% women. Mm-hmm. Let me say it differently. 95% men. Are you kidding me? <laughs> like, like you would have people picketing outside your concert hall today if that were the case. So if you ask the people evaluating talent, do you see gender mm. when you evaluate talent? They would say, no, I just hear the music. So what they did was <laughs> they, they masked the auditioning process. They put up a barrier between the evaluators of talent and those who were auditioning to be in the orchestra. Uh, in other words, you couldn't see who was performing the music. And guess what, Robert? They increased women's participation 500%. They went from 5% to 25%. And today they're roughly 50%. Because again, if you ask them, do you see gender? They say, no, well, actually you do. Because the only thing I changed in the entire auditioning process is you can't see who's performing. So how could that lead to a 5% 100% increase if you weren't seeing something subconsciously that had to do with gender. And let's be clear, if I have 95% men, I might be conditioned to think then that's who's supposed to be in the orchestra. I mean, I got to I got to challenge that notion, if not um what is it? I got to mitigate the impact of that by putting up a barrier. Mm. And that alone plus telling women don't wear high heels because it also triggered the bias. And that leveled the playing field for women to be in the orchestras. It's a great example. Mm, great story. Okay. Um, and finally, of those, discomfort is a great thing. People don't like to feel. <laughs> we don't want to feel uncomfortable. But for creative things, I certainly agree with you. Why is discomfort a great thing? So I was an athlete in college. I was mm. a track and field athlete, a high jumper, long jumper, sprinter. And what I know, which we all learn when we exercise is that the only way your muscle gets stronger is to put stress on the muscle. Mm. It tears the muscle, literally, it tears it. And then the the, the process of, of repairing the tear makes the muscle stronger. That's how it gets bigger, from repairing the tear. But what we also know is that when you tear the muscle, you're sore, it hurts. <laughs> it's not a good feeling <laughs> when you're sore, um, but it makes you stronger. Discomfort and growth must coexist. Mm. You cannot have one without the other. And so I often say, I still do uh, training and facilitation as a DEI trainer facilitator. And I tell uh, my, my classrooms, one of my goals today is for you to feel uncomfortable. <laughs> and they look at me, <laughs> is he serious? <laughs> Why would you want me to feel uncomfortable? And I say, because only in discomfort will you find growth. So my hope is that at some point you feel uncomfortable, confused, you feel anxiety, you're questioning yourself. Because if I can get you to feel those emotions, you will grow. You will be a better person today than yesterday. Just like my muscle is stronger today than yesterday. So discomfort and growth are part and parcel of a DEI journey. You must get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Great. Okay. Can we talk a bit about The Apprentice? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Great. Let's do it. So um, you won The Apprentice, The US Apprentice Season 4, <laughs> I believe. Yep. Um, That's right. Tell me a bit about that. And that meant then that you were working in the Trump 
uh, organization for, was it a year afterwards or longer afterwards? Yeah, so The Apprentice, for those that don't know, was a early uh, an early part of the reality television genre emergence. Yeah. And you'll recall, Robert, people thought it was a fad. Mm. <laughs> it was going to go away. Well, it, mm-hmm. it's here to stay. Mm-hmm. And The Apprentice was 18 aspiring business people competing each week on a task to get down to a winner who would run one of Donald Trump's companies. I won the fourth season of The Apprentice. I spent a year running Donald's operations in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Okay. And it's an interesting juxtaposition for someone like myself, who is a diversity, equity, and inclusion expert, to have had a year in the Trump organization, because I can only speak from my own lived experience. I can't speak for anyone else's. I can speak for mine. It was not an environment that honored diversity, equity, and inclusion. I went a year without seeing any other executive who looked like me. I found it to be unnecessarily combative. Mm. And 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 to our earlier conversation Robert again I worked with Donald on uh, at, at, at at very close distance. Donald from my experience was not someone who welcomed different uh, uh, differing perspectives or people who challenged him. In fact, if you challenged him, he wanted you out of his inner circle. He wanted people who saw it the way he saw it, agreed with the way he saw it, reinforced the way he saw it. And that's not my philosophy. So Donald and I are very different people uh, philosophically, if mm-hmm. not practically. And it reinforced my appreciation for diversity, equity, and inclusion, having had that experience. But I'm, so I'm, I'm thankful for the experience. But it was a very different environment than what we've created at my company, BCT Partners. And there's quite strange because we have a UK version of um, The Apprentice with Alan Sugar over here as well. Yeah, um, Sir, Sir Alan Sugar. Yep. Yeah, and um, this really odd thing happened when you won, I believe, which was Donald said to you, "Do you want to share it?" Basically, he did. And which he which did. struck you as a as I've not seen that on our version ever. I don't think you have a uh, you have a winner. So in that moment, what were your thoughts about that? And, and reflecting on it since, why was that? Do you think? You know, you're right. At my finale, live television, 14 million people. It was live as well. Yeah, it was live. Lincoln Center, New York City. Donald said, you're hired, which means you win, Randall. And then he called me back to the boardroom table and said, should I hire the runner-up? And I'll keep it real with you, Robert. I was insulted. Mm. I'm still insulted when I think back on that day. Now, there were people who said, oh... Don't be a sore winner, Randall. Hmm. Hire her too. But what's lost in that narrative, that argument, were several things. First of all, to your point, there were three seasons before me, all white winners. None of them asked to share. There were three seasons after me, all white winners. None of them asked to share. So why are you asking me? to share the title, Donald. And I can only reconcile that either of two ways. Either you are racially insensitive or you're racist. Because it wasn't like we were closely matched. And I say this with all due respect, and some will say I'm I'm, I'm, um, I'm biased in favor of myself. Well, yeah, I am. But if I try to be objective, I performed better, I was more qualified, 
I earned the victory. And when my daughter found the show online and asked me, daddy, why did he ask you to share the title? Mm. I said to her, the message I sent that night in saying no was that when you've earned something, don't be afraid to claim something. I earned it. I claimed it. And I was insulted, but I have no regrets whatsoever. And I hold my head high. That I said to Donald, no, it's not going down like that. You can hire her tomorrow if you want to. But tonight there will be one winner and it's going to be me. <laughs> Good for you. Great. And then when Don became president, then um, was, was there anything in that presidency that was surprising to you, having had personal experiences with him? Nothing was surprising to me. Uh, other than I underestimated how divisive and polarizing Donald could be. Now, I organized a press conference after Donald announced his candidacy for the presidency. Mm. And the reason I, I organized that press conference was because I had had a lens into his inner world. And I did not consider him fit to be president. Now, naturally, there are lots of people who disagree with me because he won. Um, he didn't win the popular election. He won the electoral college election. But nonetheless, I said, you know, I've had this personal inner circle experience. I'm going to let my voice be heard. And I did the press conference with four other apprentice candidates, and we denounced his candidacy uh, because we believed that he would be divisive, mm. that he wouldn't welcome diverse perspectives that he'd have blind spots because he didn't have people in his inner circle who could see it from different angles. And because we saw that play out in the Trump organization, if not on The Apprentice. Now, clearly my megaphone wasn't big enough, uh, but I still felt it my obligation, if not my responsibility to speak my lived truth because I was the only person of color who won The Apprentice and was at the table in the Trump organization to see Donald's style of leadership, which I thought was not the style for America and not the style for the world. Is he going to be president again next year? Oh, you, know, you see, I bet against him the last time. If you had interviewed me before the last election, Robert, and asked me that question, I would have said no way. And I would have said these words. I have faith in America that America would not elect someone so divisive and polarizing. So I have learned my lesson. Um, I'm convinced that he can win again. I think his challenge this time will be that America knows what they're getting. Mm -hmm. And I do believe there are vocal segments within the conservative and independent circles that think he's too damaged. And it's played out in the last two uh, on the on the last uh, the last congressional uh, election, the, the the midterm election, that's that's, that's the word I was looking for. The midterm elections, there were Trump backed candidates like a Carrie Lake, who won the party nomination, but couldn't win the general election because they were considered too divisive. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to say this now: I'm putting my faith back in America that America will seek a candidate that's more inclusive, that is more welcoming of difference, that is less polarizing and more uniting than Donald. And I'm hoping America does not let me down.
you uh, had the Rhodes Scholarship, which meant I think you spent, was it a year in the UK studying at Oxford? Two years in the UK at Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar. You got it right. Great. Okay. And I don't know how in touch you still are with, with the UK politics and UK culture and stuff. If you were to compare the UK and the US in terms of the in framing it of DEI, we have culture wars going on, I think, across the world. But here in the UK, there's a wokeism and anti-wokeism, the right using um, their definition of inclusivity and woke and all the rest of it. And I think that's happening in America as well. I just wonder if you had a viewpoint on how you would compare the two situations uh, in the UK and the US. I think without question, the the common ground, and, and, and it played out with Brexit, uh, is this co-opting of, of wokeness mm-hmm. uh, this embracing of, of nationalism and separatism as a reflection of uh, the culture war that you just described I think that's common across the UK and the US that both countries are wrestling if not tugging if not warring at the fabric of our uh, democracy, our society, our political systems, our ideology. And it's under this banner of anti-wokeness, but underlying that is fundamental questions about human dignity, about us versus them, like what does that mean to you? And about uh, where we draw the lines of us in them, on immigration, on nations, on cultures, on ethnicities. But where there's a difference, I find, for the UK and the US, is that I find in the UK, those lines are more generally drawn on socioeconomic considerations, generally. And in the US, more on racial and ethnic lines. Now, it's not a clean separation, but I find that class is more of the dividing line in the UK and race is more of the dividing line in the US. Interesting. Okay, cool. Um, You're a multi-passionate person. The various things you mentioned being an athlete. Um, I think that most of your five academic degrees are kind of in the, the world of science, I believe. That's right. Technology. Yeah. Technology, yeah. science. Yeah. You're obviously an entrepreneur and a writer, businessman. When you're multi-passionate like that, and I speak to a lot of people on this podcast, and I'm multi-passionate, I enjoy a few different things. Is it difficult sometimes to tell people what you do <laughs> if, if they're after a pithy explanation of it and then um, join to that? How do you decide what the project is at the moment that you're working on? I mean, if you've got a deadline for a book, that's the project, I guess. But do you know what I mean? When you get up in the morning, and you're sort of thinking, today I am putting on my entrepreneur hat or whatever it is. How does that work for you? I love the question, Robert. And and I I think that question is born because, as you said, you you're in the same boat. <laughs> yeah, and it's so and, you understand, and I love it, right? And I, so many people I speak to on this, it's certainly in like the creative lines of work, we have to be because it's just hard in any one thing. I think so. We have to try a few different things, but there are those moments where I always think of like digging for oil. So it's like, well, I'm getting so far in this thing now, and we're going to pause that and move over here. And if I kept with the one, would I eventually get that oil? It's it's difficult to know, isn't it? Sorry, your reflection. No, it is, and and my, my my pastor at my church when I was finishing my my fifth and last degree <laughs> uh, when I was when I was at MIT, I was at Morningstar Baptist Church. Pastor Matthew 
John Matthew Borders, we called him JMB. And he gave me some of the best advice I could have ever received. He said, there are lots of paths you could pursue now that you're finishing your, your, your academic career and moving into your professional career. You have to decide what's the one thing you want to be known for. Mm. And you've got to go all in on that. He said, everything else is icing on your cake, but what's the one thing you want to be known for? And I said, I want to be known as an entrepreneur, as a businessman. He says, so whatever else you do, writing, speaking, publishing, media has to be second to that, which means you got to read the books on entrepreneurship. You got to go to the conferences on entrepreneurship. You got to study other entrepreneurs who you hope to emulate. He said, you got to go all the way in on that. Everything else is secondary. And that's exactly what I've done. When, when push comes to shove and I have competing demands and I have to, I have to ask the tough question, what is first? It's my business. It's entrepreneurship. Everything else can be cast aside. And there were many, many moments along this journey of authorship mm. where I was called to question, do I write or do I close the deal? And guess what, Robert? I closed the deal every time. Every time. Great. And those things are linked, of course. And you're sort of, do you feel that you have an overriding mission for all these things that you're doing? Which I guess may well come back to the DEI thing, whether you're writing about it, talking about it, just being out there as a businessman, is it all linked to the same thing? It is. It is. You know, for me, it, and I'm sure for you, there is a unifying theme. Hmm. Uh, I, 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 I fancy myself a social entrepreneur. That is somebody who tries to do well and do good, make a profit and make a difference, get a financial return and a social return. Mm. And, and which means it's not just what I do, but how I do it. There's a certain values I have to uphold, a certain ethos I have to embody. I, I'm, I'm a Christian, the man of God. I have, to, I have to subscribe to my faith. Like that's part of my walk is this idea of, being an exemplar of business and integrity, of entrepreneurship and ethics. Like that's who I am. That's what I do. And that's what I lead with. And I write about it and I speak about it and I, you know, I study it, but 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 where it all begins, social entrepreneur. Do well, do good. Brilliant. Randall, you're very inspiring. I've really enjoyed chatting to you. If people want to find your work, buy the books see your uh, stuff that you've been doing what's the best way to do that where can they find you so i i strongly encourage your listeners to go to datadrivendei.com to learn more about the book learn about the tools there's free resources free templates free case studies free best practices but for me you can follow me at randall pinkett that's randall with one l mm-hmm. on all social media platforms linkedin facebook twitter Instagram, or just go to randallpinkett.com. Randall with one L, Pinkett with two T's, or Google me. Uh, look up uh, The Black Apprentice, and I'll come right up. <laughs> but yeah, go check me out. Please reach out to me. Robert, I so appreciate you giving me the opportunity to have this dialogue with you. I appreciate what you're doing to lift up voices and to be a voice for the things that matter. And it's been a real honor and a privilege to be in dialogue with you. Oh, thank you, Randall. Um, all the best, and we'll speak again. Stay in touch. Blessings. Mm-hmm.